0: From the Asset Builder headquarters in Dallas, Texas, welcome to Keep It Simple, a podcast that discusses simple techniques and philosophies to help de-stressify investors around the world. I'm your host, Jared Herzog, and welcome to the show. Today, we're learning from our esteemed registered investment advisor, Adam Morse, and our human economic database and fearless CIO, Michael French. And today, we're discussing why stocks have gone up despite the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic, there's riots in the streets, unemployment is still high. Why have stocks continued to rise despite what we're seeing on the news? So, without further ado, let's get to the show. Good morning, gentlemen. How are good you guys morning. doing today? Morning,
1: Jared. Doing well, Jared. How about yourself?
0: I'm doing pretty good. It's uh, it's hot here in Texas, huh? Very, very hot.
1: It is not 100 degrees. I don't know why you guys are whining.
0: <laughs> oh. It's brutal. I feel like we should be used to this by now after all these years living here, but
1: it's... But you're still whining. Yeah, still whining. It's amazing.
0: (laughs) So today we're talking about actually something rather optimistic. Um, So stocks continue to go up, and this is all in spite of riots, a pandemic, what have you, unemployment. So, Michael, why? Why are stocks continuing to rise despite these things?
1: Well, you know, that's a good It's a good question. It's something that Adam, uh, I know, has talked about clients asking. Uh, friends ask, parents ask. Um, I've had the same experience. I think the first thing, and I talked about this in, in one of the articles that I wrote, uh, uh, stock market is forward-looking. The stock market isn't looking at what's happening today, it's looking at what's going to happen in the future. Um, there's a lot of different ways you can say it, a, a very irreverent way. Uh, this is something that somebody said on TikTok, which is, I guess, going to replace <laughs> YouTube soon is that the stock market is nothing more than a graph of rich people's feelings, which is <laughs> funny, not necessarily accurate because a lot of investors are, you know, people like us who aren't rich. We are simply invested. Um, but, but what it, it, another another way to look at it is just it's this uh, the stock market is a is a accurate and unemotional and purely quantitative way to tabulate what all investors think about the health and the prospects of future earnings for publicly traded companies. So it's another way that's a really wonky and drawn out and borrowed way of saying. Markets are efficient. It's, it is the consensus view of what anybody who has money to invest believes is going to happen in the future. So markets are going up not because people aren't aware that there's a riot or aware that there's a pandemic, but they look at it and they assume that eh, we'll have a vaccine. They look at the math behind the pandemic and think, well, Maybe that was overblown. It didn't really kill a tenth of the population. Uh, they look at riots and they realize that the economic impact there is not nearly as great as the social impact that we would hope that uh, changes might, might result. And so uh, it's just a way of, of people saying eh, and shrugging their shoulders and uh, putting their money to work.
0: Right, and there's something to be said there about about the media, um, you know, portraying things as maybe possibly worse than maybe they actually are. Adam, do you think that that that's true? That maybe investors see past um, sort of the doomsday quote head uh, quote unquote headlines.
2: I absolutely do think it's fair to say the media has an impact on not just markets, but how people perceive markets. I think, especially on the institutional side, I think institutional investors absolutely see past a lot of that. But I think it's always helpful to just remember, um, you know, when I get, I had two different family members come to me over the last week asking me kind of this question, why do stocks go up in times like this? But I think the spirit behind the question is, they don't really wanna know why, they're, they're more implying stocks aren't tied to anything, that the price of the market prices aren't tied to anything, it's all irrational. And so I think there's, you know, to Michael's point, one of the misunderstandings is, well, markets weren't – the prices weren't always up throughout the entire pandemic. As a matter of fact, people were panicking three and a half, mm-hmm. four months ago in early March. The sky was falling. The bottom was falling out. One of the fastest recessions in our country's history. That was because investors were looking forward to the pandemic, expecting there to be disruptions in supply chains, disruptions in consumption patterns, and so on and so forth. Well, at this point in time, you could make an argument – you know second second spike in the curve, notwithstanding, you could make an argument that we are through at least a brunt of the pandemic. And so investors looking forward can have reason for optimism. I do think the way that the media portrays a lot of these things, whether that be the pandemic, whether that be the protest that we're seeing um, throughout the country related to the George Floyd death, um, mm-hmm. I think it's important to remember, There's two different ways to look at that there's looking at it from a a social impact um and a a human interest impact but when we're talking about the economy i think because of the way the media covers them and the and the amount of coverage that these things get i'm not saying that's justified or not i'm just saying that it's a fact they get a lot of coverage there's a tendency for you know the average do-it-yourself investor to look at that and think that there should be a proportionate impact on markets right Relative to the amount of media coverage they get. And I think if savvy, savvy investors look at that and say, well, you know, okay, if there's a if there's a protest in Seattle, right, and they might, there might be 10,000 people marching and they're going to shut down these blocks of Seattle, well, that's a significant thing on a human level. But on an economical level, you know, we forget how big the U.S. economy really is. So if I'm trying to project forward, you know, as we've already said, stock prices look forward. If I'm trying to project forward the impact on our GDP and the impact of, say, you know, how many phones is Apple going to sell? How many deliveries is Amazon going to make? How many, you know, bedspreads is Target going to sell? It's not necessarily as big of an impact as you might think if all you did was look at the amount of time the media spends covering these things. And so just keeping those two things separate, you know, putting on your investor hat. And then putting on your, you know, whatever side of the
0: aisle you fall on, putting on your your human hat and looking at it from that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a fantastic point, Michael. So how much of this, of stocks growing is due to people getting, well, stimulus checks and having money to
1: spend? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think a lot of it, you know, the, the, we talked about this several podcasts ago, and I think people, to Adam's point don't understand the size of the GDP. And because you don't understand the size of the GDP, you can't possibly understand the size of the stimulus that came out. And I just say you and can't possibly, just people in general, if you don't know, for instance, uh, how far it is to the moon, you can't imagine how far it is to go a tenth of the way to the moon because you just, you, you can't measure the distance. So we talked about this earlier, but in an earlier podcast. But if our GDP is a $22 trillion GDP, that's just the sum of everything that we make. Um, Well, then what happens when our government says we are going to stimulate the economy? We are going to pump in to the economy through various means. And, you know, they sent checks to people. They extended unemployment benefits. They um, lent money to small businesses. They stepped in and said, "We will, if necessary, be the buyer of uh, debt obligations." So, if companies had issued debt and couldn't pay those debts, the the government said, "We'll we'll make those payments for you." So, all told, that was a commitment of over two trillion dollars. By the way, we're now you know we're we're now hearing pretty pretty consensus views from both sides of the political aisle that that stimulus might not be done, that there might be more stimulus. Mm-hmm. So we have a $22 trillion economy, and the government has said, hey, by the way, we're going to pump in $2 trillion, more than $2 trillion. So a tenth of the economic activity, uh, we'll just make sure that that happens for sure. Well, if you think about it, Back when we had 15% unemployment and the government was sending out checks, stimulus checks, let's say it's $1,200 to every individual. Mm-hmm. And I know there's a lot of people who you know, didn't get stimulus checks or whatever the case may be. Um, there were limitations on it. But if, if you sent that to 100 people, but only 15 of those people were actually unemployed, what that meant was that 85 people just got a free thousand bucks. Now, if you were like a lot of people, when you got that money, you were kind of nervous. You weren't sure what was going to happen. So you just put that money aside and said, I'm going to let it sit there. If you were actually one of the people who was unemployed, you might have said, thank God this is here. I'm going to spend it and you know pay my rent, buy food. Um, so if you were one of those 85 people, though, and you simply said, I'm going to sit on this money. Then by putting that money in the bank, you then made it available so that the bank could lend it out and invest or do what they do with money that sits in the bank. Your $1,000 doesn't just go there and sit. It gets used by the bank. So that was one way that you, you could look and you could say, well, when we simply put money into the economy, it causes stocks to grow. The second thing that could happen is maybe you you, you took that money and you're like, well, my job's secure. I know that what I do is going to be necessary no matter what happens with this pandemic. So I'm going to go out and spend that money. So you went out and you found the one or two places where you could spend your money, uh, primarily Amazon, and you spent that money. And so goods were produced, services were maybe given to you. um, And what happened then was that those companies that were providing those goods and services saw... The value of their companies go up. Uh, they had more sales. You know, you look specifically again at Amazon and how well they did uh, during this pandemic, uh, and and so what we found was that a lot of, again, a lot of the prices that that have gone up, stock market prices, we may someday find well that was the direct result as intended of the government stimulus. The government stimulus was designed to do two things. One of them we don't talk about, but it's there. The first thing that we talk about is help people, because that sounds good. But the second thing was to make sure that the economy was stable. And one of the things that you're really saying there is make sure that stock prices don't crater, because that's a reflection of our view of the future.
2: I don't disagree, Michael, that the stimulus absolutely had the intended impact for all the reasons you just described and the way the money flows through the system. But I think what's important just societally for us to consider is, first of all, would the recovery or at least portions of the recovery happened anyway if mm-hmm. we had not printed the $2 trillion, right? If we had not had that stimulus plan. Um, because I, I think looking forward, you look back to '08, you look at this situation – it's a slippery slope to go down to create this almost addictive like behavior of any time the market falters, any time stocks drop consistently and quickly, we're now having to print money. Right? Because yep. that's something that, that yeah people that are, are market participants can get addicted to, can get hooked on. Because like you just said, when I get a thousand dollars, you know, if if that money had not been printed, if I'm someone that received a thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. I don't have to make that choice between consuming or saving, right? So, yep, do I right. buy something? Do I save something? Or do I invest something? I have to make a choice. So, something in the system has to give. There's this system of checks and balances. Something has to receive for something else to grow. Well, when you print the thousand bucks, well, now I can save my thousand, and I can still spend or invest my thousand. That's right. And so, yeah. it, it, it creates this this sense that that people lose that. Whether you're an institutional investor or a do-it-yourselfer or whatever, the system is designed to make you identify what is most valuable. And when that mechanism is removed, well, how long can you do that for, right? And right. so I just think it's right. an important thing to keep in the back of our minds. I know we're just talking about the facts, but it's it's important um, because it's a lot of money. I, think I, pre- and I know yeah. we already talked about that in a previous episode, but that's just my two cents
1: and i think we'll we we need to cover this later jared like and we will what are the long-term impacts of this what does this do to inflation and and given what you might think it's going to do with inflation Mm -hmm. how should we react so we can talk about that i know we will we always get to that stuff at the end so um so michael
0: so do rising stocks necessarily indicate um, a recovering economy how do stocks necessarily relate to gdp (sighs) (laughs)
1: That's a really good question, Jared. And the the honest truth is they're just not that correlated. Um, The S&P, for instance, outpaced GDP growth by 13 percentage points a year after inflation uh, in the 1950s. But then it was five points behind it in the 1970s. Um, In Mm -hmm. the 2000s, the S&P trailed GDP growth by five percentage points a year, Um, But then during this last decade, it beat it by 10 percentage points a year. Now, here's what's interesting. In all those periods of time, if you looked, uh, the GDP growth was pretty stable. It was the S&P that was moving up and moving down. And so when we said earlier, it's a collection of sentiments that people have about the future— it's not always even really accurate. Uh, because if it was accurate, you would say, well, GDP growth is kind of stable uh, between 2 and 3%, almost consistently. Sometimes it, it goes up and it's a lot higher. Uh, but rarely for long. It'll spike, but then it, it comes back down to this really normal range. So in that case, you would say, well, then the stock market should be pretty stable too, and it's just not. And so, stock market is is genuinely not uh, closely correlated to GDP.
0: Adam, is this fifty day historic run really all that shocking? how How does it compare to fifty day runs in the past?
2: The simple answer to is a shocking. I think is no. Um, if I could just give ourselves the slightest humble pat on the back. On this podcast a few episodes ago, we reviewed what history has to tell us about, you know, when you have recessions like this, what do recoveries normally look like? And this is following that exact template. Um, You have a sharp rise. And so when you say, is it surprising? No, now please remember this if you're listening for future instances, because we know there'll be more recessions. Use this as, um, you know, sock this away in your long-term memory. And remember this emotion, because three months ago, you know, every conversation we're having is the sky is falling, right? And things are never going to be the same. And here we are, you know, through May, now have the, the fastest or, or the, the the largest 50-day run-up in history. So what's interesting about that is not just that, you know, there's been this spike, but what we can actually learn from things like this 50-day spike and what that has to say about the future looking forward
0: again using history as our teacher so what can we expect going forward
1: uh, for the future? so I think what we what we can do when we look and we say well what can we expect going forward one of the things that's most useful is to look historically and say well what's happened following large rallies in the past so if you go back there have been uh, I think there were nine instances where, Uh, the 50-day change in the S&P 500 was positive by more than 20%. So over 50 days, when the S&P has gone up by 20%, what has been the experience six or 12 months later? Um, When it goes up by 20% very quickly over that compressed 50-day period, that's only happened nine times. And so you might expect that, well, when you look out six months later, things have come back down. You you know, people got overly exuberant. Um, But the reality is that 100% of the time, uh, stocks have been positive six months out. So uh, this is measuring back from 1975. And so you have uh, this happened in 75, 82, 91, 97, 98. happened twice in 2009. And uh, now it's happened again in 2020. And so... You know, just going out six months from then, uh, the, the worst experience was it was only up 3%. Um, if you go out 12 months and you say, well, but did it come down eventually? Uh, the answer is no in, in 100% of the instances. And, and this is the ninth instance. So, you know, we, we don't yet have the data on this. But, but 100% of the time, the stocks were still up. Uh, in some cases significantly, in some cases 26%, 20%, 22%, uh, but at least 5%. Back in 2009, uh, the stocks had gone up 20% uh, by September of 2009. And um, 12 months later, they were up in another 5%. And so what we know is that historically, what this would tell us is that stocks are going to continue to go up. That obviously is not a prediction. We don't sit here and say, oh, we can predict the future. Uh, mm-hmm. If we could, we would probably charge for the podcast or something. I don't know <laughs> if you can do that. But but so what we do know, though, is that historically uh, prices of stocks have continued to go up even after you've had a sharp increase. So it's something mm-hmm. that as an investor, if you say, well, have I missed everything, uh, No, you need to be thoughtful, though, about how you if you've pulled your money out and you're sitting on the sidelines, you need to be thoughtful about how you reinvest your assets. Um, You should not necessarily just, okay. I'm jumping back in. Now I'm jumping back out. Adam's point, uh, Adam said something earlier that I think is really good. And it, it kind of highlighted to me an area where financial advisors can struggle. And that is by making sure that people are comfortable with the risks that they're taking on the up and on the down. Uh, Because we had clients who, quite frankly, when they wanted to sit on the sideline, it helped you realize, wow, they were never comfortable with the level of risk they were taking to begin with. It's just they had only experienced the up. And so
2: they they had measured their risk tolerance in ideal circumstances.
1: Yeah. And so if you said Mm -hmm. to people Hey, are you comfortable with stocks going up by 20% or 15 or 10? People were like, "Well, 20 sounds greedy. 10's the lowest number, so I'll take 15." Well, sure, but what that meant was that your portfolio could also go down by 30 or 40%. And then and then people were like, "Well, I'm not comfortable with that." So as you as you re-enter, if you've been sitting on the sidelines and you're thinking about re-entering, it's really good to talk to your advisor about risk, um, your risk tolerance, but also your risk capacity. Can you even afford to take this risk? And then there's a third element of risk, which is risk necessity. Do I even need to be taking any risk? And so break that conversation down with your advisor. Um, but then the other thing is like thinking thinking over timelines and looking, out long periods of time and saying am i prepared for things like rising inflation um we know that yesterday the fed released uh the fed did some stuff they released a statement and the u.s dollar immediately uh began to weaken and so that is something that is going to mean that foreign stocks are better positioned than u.s stocks Uh, we can explain that in a future episode i guess But it also means that um, inflation is probably going to be something that we're going to see over the next five years. It's going to start to hit. And so is your portfolio designed to outpace inflation? And so thinking through all of these things is really important. It's kind of a jigsaw puzzle. Everybody's unique. And so talk to your financial advisor, get get advice, and and make sure that you have all of your bases covered uh, going forward. That's perfect. Adam, anything to add to that?
2: No, I think that's absolutely spot on. I think, you know, especially if you're in cash, but even if you're not on the sidelines, if you're still in, it's just a good time anytime we go through something like this to recalibrate, you know, look yourself in the mirror as an investor, be honest with yourself about how you handled the last three months um, and how you can use that information moving forward to make sure that whatever mistakes that you may have made aren't made in the future
0: and you're, you're that much better off. Perfect. Sounds good. All right, guys. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, we will see you next time.
1: All right. Take care, guys.
0: Always. Thanks, Jared. If you have a question for either Michael or Adam concerning this topic or anything else, please visit AssetBuilder.com podcast. There you can find their contact information as well as the show notes for every single episode. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not to be construed as an offer, solicitation, recommendation, or endorsement of any particular security, product, or service. For more information, visit AssetBuilder.com.